People are going to spend, they're going to take risks, and they're going to be highly social. And sometimes in the media, you hear this referred to as the Roaring Twenties all over again. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host, Brian Hayes, we have both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. Unfortunately, we've become used to changing circumstances and a fair amount of uncertainty over this past year. Just when we thought things were back on track, new data comes out and we all take a step back again. It turns out that pandemics aren't great for predictability. So, can we make some educated guesses as to what's coming next? This kind of trend forecasting is the speciality of our guest today. The Dutch futurologist Timon de Jong joins us today to talk about everything from the future of office life to how very accurate algorithms can actually make us nervous. This is a really great episode for anyone who's wondering what the world of financial services and our lives in general may look like over the next year or two. We're very glad to have you with us today, Timon. Please start off by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes, my name is Timon de Jong. I live in Amsterdam and I am a social psychologist, which means I study people's behavior and my specialization within that field is the future of human behavior and then what it practically means for leadership and business strategy. I do two things with that. I run a think tank called Wetston and I lecture at Utrecht University, the social psychology department. Wow. And so how did you get into doing this? I worked for a long time at a research consultancy firm, which did people research. And we made these big trend reports and quantitative and qualitative studies. And I was always the one in that agency who had to do all the presentations and the keynotes and the workshop because no one and the pitches, no one wanted to do it. Until I got actually picked up by an agent, um, a speaker agent who said, uh, you're good on the stage, you can do this for a living. You just start your own little company and focus on doing that. And, and so I did eight years ago. And the lecturing I've been doing for almost 10 years now. So I specialize in, in keynote speaking, leadership training, workshops, and lecturing to students. And as long as it's with a group of people in front of me talking about people and their behavior and changes and the implications. Fabulous. Okay, so I think we'll head into our first section, which we call our deep dive. Man, and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So we did an event with you recently where we were focusing on financial services. We invited a, a whole bunch of financial services customers to the event, which is really very interesting. And we were talking really your thoughts on the future and the future of people's interaction with financial services. So do you want to lay out your hypothesis and we'll chat on from there? Well, let me start with how people are going to behave when we come out of this pandemic, out of this crisis. And the interesting thing is that many people think it's the crisis and then we have the so-called post-COVID times. But there's an interesting in-between phase, sometimes referred to as the transformation compensation phase, where we'll see some interesting behavioral changes, quite spectacular. Now, if you look at changing behavior right now in the pandemic, we see, and this is quite relevant for you know financial industry, is that people are actually are not spending their money. For example, here in the Netherlands, the Dutch people last year in 2020 saved up four times as much as they did, for example, in 2018. So 
not spending and taking less risks. So not only in their daily lives when, let's say, crossing the street, but also taking risks, you know, am I, am I going to buy that house or that car or and also in their professional life. So less risk taking and not a lot of spending. And then also we talked about how people, for example, act socially. And what we see is that people withdraw socially, go into so-called social hibernation mode. Now, what will happen when society is opening up again? And this is quite well researched in previous pandemics and also wartime situations because wars also end quite abruptly. And what we see after pandemics and after wars is that the kind behavior that I was just describing makes a 180 degree turn. So that means that people are going to spend. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you know, if I'd ask you or if I ask an audience, all right, what are you looking forward to when the pandemic is over? And people say, ah, go to a restaurant, go to a festival. I'm, I'm finally going to travel again. Uh, Bali, here I come. And all those things cost quite a bit of money. So people are going to spend, they're going to take risks, and they're going to be highly social. And sometimes in, in the media, you hear this referred to as the roaring 20s all over again. And expected that this will last most likely, most likely, we're not sure, six to 12 months. And after that, only after that compensation period where you hear a lot of people say, I deserve this and I need to indulge now, then we'll go to the true post-COVID world and they're going to calm down a bit. And hopefully then, yeah, well, the extreme behavior that we see now and extreme behavior from the compensation time, then we'll go to the new normal, as we say. Oh, okay. So is that that's the time for business travelers to get their status back? <laughs> that's a good question. And and that's the that's a very interesting one. So if you ask professionals now, do you think you'll travel as much post-COVID as you did pre-COVID? Do you say no, no, we're gonna travel less and now you know it's it's so normal now to meet and be on Zoom or Teams. But the thing is, so I expect the first six to 12 months, because we haven't met up physically and you might have new clients you've never met in person before, that if you get the chance, it's great to see them for the first time live and interact and have a proper dinner with them or a proper coffee and to sit down. And the question is, how will that compare, that experience then, compared to all the Zooming we've done and many people suffer from what's called Zoom fatigue, also quite a hype term. And if you compare those two, many people will prefer the physical meeting. So all these, let's say, predictions that we won't do much business travel post-COVID, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit less, but I'm not expecting, let's say, that business travel will be you know, cut by 50%, for example, not big percentages, maybe 10, 15%. I would already, you know, from a social psychology perspective, that would already be a lot. Okay, well, that's so, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I would suggest, though, that during this past 12 months, a lot of firms have benefited from a reduced T&E expense lines and have banked that so that then coming out of this, those budgets are going to have to get reestablished. And that's a big cost that a lot of people are going to have to go find. So I'm not as convinced it's going to bounce back as far as, as folks would think. I think, you know, maybe some balance has come into the equation a bit here. Yeah, I can offer you a bit of nuance. It's not that we're going to fly to Beijing for a business meeting like the extremes most likely gonna be taken away so business travel will be there will be more local so let's say if you're a global firm and you have a let's say an all employee meeting normally you would fly everyone into let's say london but now and and this is there's also a, a topic i touched upon last month is the so-called hybrid 
So you'll have an Asia hub, you'll have a Europe hub, you'll have an, maybe an America's hub, and there you'll have the people together. So they'll still be traveling, but we're not going to fly everyone into the other side of the world, but you might hop on a train or a local flight close by, but then still have people together because that benefit of people actually being physically together and and the joy that brings us and it's you know that is that's a thing we've missed but then connect digitally to the asia team the americas team so we're going to see more of that where a few people or a larger group of people will meet up locally and connect to another group of people who've met up locally as well so it's a bit of the best of both worlds so on, well, i guess the question i had which is which is related you know, I think people are to make different selections. There's going to be different electives. I don't think companies are going to force people to do things that they want to do. And some people will choose not to go to the office. I think some companies are choosing to go back to the office. You know, how If I want you to roll the clock forward, how do you think it's going to look and feel in you know, 18, 24 months' time when the most of the world will have been vaccinated? And you know, what's your vision of the world for financial services? around those common topics for, for the 18, 24 months. So are we coming back to the office, yes or no? So it, broad, so not specifically to financial services. I think we'll, we're going to see a lot of experiments. In my talk last month, I gave the, the, the two most extreme examples from clients I have. Uh, two IT firms, one says we're going to close down 80% of our offices that we had pre-COVID, so we only have 20% of office space left. The other client, also multinational, also IT firm, Swedish one, the headquarters are in Sweden, the other is an American firm, said, no, we've been renting extra office space since the start of the pandemic because we want to have everyone in. Because as the world's getting more virtual, this is what we need. We need to get together to stay mentally healthy, to stay productive and to stay creative. And I think we're going to see both of those also in financial services where if you are a working from home type, so you totally love this situation and you know just thinking about going back to the office, you know being in that awful, noisy, distracting open office again, you know you, you know. So then you might go to a company who has that as the USP. You can work here five days a week uh, working from home. For example, my brother actually works for a scale up, and they closed all the offices and they said, you know, when the pandemic is over, we're going to try to stay fully without an office. So that might be a thing then for you. But on the other hand, there might be organizations who say, no, it's our culture, our DNA, to have everyone in the office. And that will attract a certain kind of person who likes that. But I think most of us will be in the middle. And what's in the middle? Most days at the office and a minority of their work, of our work, one or two days working from home, working virtually, remotely. So just to take that one stage further, because we will have people listening that have got a branch style of network in different countries so for very good reasons. How do you think that's going to evolve in terms of the history and then perhaps branch banking, branch services that are offered? Yes, yeah, so, so a branch has a bit of an um, old-fashioned connotation to it. So the, the hype term is hubs, having hubs. <laughs> and, and, and then, for example, these dynamic hubs that you have a place where you can have two people working, but also... Then suddenly, if you have clients in and, and another, then you can accommodate 20 people or maybe 50. So being agile and flexible, uh, not only digitally, but also physically. 
So when we think of, for example, an old bank with a beautiful old-fashioned building, which is a bit static, if you think it, see it more as a hub, which some days when everyone joins because something, you know, you can accommodate a lot of people or a lot of clients and other days it might be quiet and then you might use the space for something else. So I think physical branches or hubs will still be there, but they will be more flexible. And the question is, do you as any organization, any company, any bank, should you hold an old-fashioned branch headquarters, you know, an old-fashioned building that is just yours and only you occupy that or use it? Or are you going to work together, collaborate, and be more open and flexible? But that we will have physical manifestations of what we do digitally, that is that is a hundred percent what people want, especially after being virtual and having being locked down and just digital, you know, this whole working from home, we want to get out there and be physical again while still keeping the best of the virtual. Well, I do absolutely agree with you. I think that the whole physical versus virtual and the physical versus digital is an, is an interesting challenge. And I, I, I agree that I think there'll be lots of experimentation for people to try and get the balance that works for them and the community that they're servicing from a banking perspective. I'm going to push you a little bit further now, so we're going to go, we're going to move into ethics and trust. Yes. So just that's, yes, you know, brace, <laughs> yeah. brace yourself. But, the, the, so, but Brian, <laughs> one thing: there is, there's not a one size fits all solution. It depends on what kind of organization you are, and and there's not one size fits all. Like if we offer this to our people or our clients, that's going to work. So people differ. You know, if you look at the studies, how much people like this working from home. So some people say it's fantastic. Other people say I went into a working from home burnout after a week. So if there was one solution that would be beneficial to all, we wouldn't have this conversation. Agreed. Now, let's take that physical versus digital one stage further. So we've seen lots of people move online out of necessity. Lots of people have moved to their banking apps for the first time. And this is globally. We've seen lots of, there's lots of great statistics around that. And I guess for me, it, it brings back the question of the validity and currency of cash. So cash, carrying cash, using cash versus, you know, a continuously digital type of payment mechanism. So what's your, and I know it goes into ethics and I know it goes into into different social questions, but I'd be just interested in your view as a futurologist, how you see that unpanning. Well, I think from a behavioral perspective, the emotion that people have with cash is different than when it's digital. The interesting thing is there's quite a bit of research on, for example, I give you a uh, hundred euros in your bank account, or I give you a hundred euros in hand cash, and then I send you into a shopping street and I say, all right, now spend that. The interesting thing is people spend, when it's digital, so if you just have plastic, people spend it, or with the mobile payment, people spend it easier than cash. Now, why is that? Because giving something physically away feels different. You're actually parting from it emotionally. So there is an emotional component in cash that is very important. There are all kinds of rituals around cash and it's a bit like the... (laughs) It's a bit like the monarchy, right? There's not really a rational reason why countries like the British monarchy or in the Netherlands, wherever, to keep them around, but it's just... 
the emotional, you know, the fact that we have a monarchy, you know, we're emotionally tied to it. So I think, yes, there's a business perspective and, you know, it costs a lot of money to have cash, to have it in our, you know, in our whole banking system. But I would take a look at it from an emotional perspective. And that's why I'd say there will always be cash and their different countries have different opinions the, the germans love their cash for example and it also has to do with trust in society do you trust all your money being digital in the bank or would you like to have some in an old sock under your bed so we see culturally there are quite a bit of differences there so will cash disappear if that would be your next question no no i'd say <laughs> keep it no 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 i don't so i don't think it's that but the interesting one and i think both you and brian have said it about is trust so what are your what are your thoughts then around how people see financial services organizations versus some of the folks that are challenging in that space? Well, I think it depends a lot on your age. So I'm 43, I'm old. To me, a bank is still, you know, I remember going into a bank, a physical building, you went to the teller, you had to fill out some forms. But but if you're young, if you say you're 21, have you ever been in a bank? You might be at a digital-only bank. So to me, Facebook is a newcomer. But if you're 21, you don't remember Facebook not being there. So to a 21-year-old, Facebook is as old of a brand as a bank that's 100 years old. So many of these digital players are just old brands to young people. So it depends very much what generation you are, how you perceive for example, Bitcoin or the digital banks that are out there compared to the old ones that we have, the legacy banks. So do you think then to these, the term I think is digitally native, but to that generation, do you think they want to bank with Facebook or a social media platform or do they not really have the concept of bank and banking? So my children now never go in a bank. So, you know, what, what does that mean for banks? So that means banks have to think about how are we going to create an emotion that connects them to us. So how can you create a relationship between the brand, the bank, the organization, the services you provide, and your customer, so your children. So if they don't do anything, then they might switch to Facebook if Facebook starts a bank because they have the same feeling with your bank as Facebook. If Facebook can get that emotional connection to them. So I think banks should think about their young customers and think, all right, how can we give them some of that, what we, Matthew, and, and, and we're a bit older, that we had. How can we give them the feeling, you know, you can trust us. We are old legacy. We are here now. We were here a hundred years ago. We will be there in a hundred years time. Uh, your money is safe with us. So they have to think about ways to build that relationship. And then you come to what Brian said about branches. So yes, you can close all local branches you want because it saves you money, but you're not building relationships. And then Facebook comes around, they can build relationship easily on their platform. And then you lose them because you haven't built a relationship with them. So that is a big question for banks and young people. Uh, okay. Uh, so there's two things, right? The first is, uh, thank you for assuming I'm a lot younger than I clearly am. <laughs> Obviously, the products I'm using are paying dividends, or, the, or it's either that or I'm spending a lot more money on lighting than you realize. <laughs> but good, the it's second... a good camera. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I purposely smeared it before we started. But I want to explore that a little bit more. So, and, and it's kind of about trust. Now, you mentioned trust, you mentioned privacy. And you know, do you think that we'll be thinking of money as data? And it's just something you share. Or do you think actually you then start thinking about, hang on, if you hold my money and all the metadata that goes around that and 
you, would you then start profiling me for where I spend it and therefore potentially inside of a social platform make some links that you might not really wish to have exposed? Do you see what I mean around that like, privacy angle a bit more? Yeah, the privacy angle. So it's interesting. So we thought, and I thought, and, and this was a mistake, for years we thought that every generation would be more open and that privacy would be less important. Mark Facebook said, I think it was in 2016, famous quote, you can find it online, for our generation, the age of privacy is over. The interesting thing is, so we thought with the teenagers, when they grow up, it will be even more of a thing that privacy is gone. But now what we see in research, youngsters, so teenagers and youngsters in their early 20s, find privacy more important than youngsters in their 20s and a little bit older in their 30s. So it's coming back. It's actually coming in waves. And the interesting thing is, if you look at research among teenagers now, they see all the things that happen if you just give all your data and all you know, you you know, privacy is just out there and everything's using that. And they think, wait, wait, uh, this is important to me again. And it's higher on their list of things you are concerned and worried about. So for banks to say, all right, your data, it is extremely important to us and we're going to make sure we're not going to share it with anyone. ING made a, quite a big mistake with that two years ago. I don't know if you're aware of that, that they said, we will start sharing some data with, you know, uh, with external parties and its experiment and, and there was a whole media storm around it. So they thought people had moved on and privacy was not important anymore. It is. So, and it's not going away. So it's actually coming back, which I think from my perspective is good news. Again, privacy. And I want to talk about customer services in financial services. And you've mentioned before about algorithm aversion. Can you elaborate a bit more on that for people that are listening for the first time? Yeah, so it's a mistake to think that people love new technology. If you look throughout history, if a new technology gets in introduced, the majority of people don't embrace it. They actually resent it. They say, that's new. Why would I use that? Do I need that? No, really, no. You know, I don't want it. So historically, there are terms like technophobia or automation anxiety. These terms have been around for 100 years. And one of these new terms is algorithm aversion, referring to all the algorithms that are coming that's starting to outsmart us. There's quite a bit of research on how people, regular drivers, respond to Google Maps, then suddenly saying, you shouldn't go left here, you should go straight. That's the shortest route. And then people thinking, wait, I can outsmart the algorithm. Are you going to make that decision for me? So algorithm aversion is actually that people are aware that algorithms are there and they are not necessarily embracing them. They think they're smarter. And for example, in decision-making, they want to feel that they're in control and they're making the decision and not the algorithm. So if the algorithm is just a tool, an assistant on the side, that's fine. But if the algorithm grabs the wheel and we have the feeling we, we let that all go, that is tough. And this is a problem when introducing smart new technologies that you first have to overcome this algorithm aversion, which is very much an emotional response to new technologies, new digital tools coming. So does that mean people will find it more acceptable if it feels like it's augmenting rather than replacing their choice? Yes, so maybe the algorithm can say, all right, Matthew, it's a summer vacation. This is your vacation, right? Because we've seen your travel history. We know your budget. We know what your partner wants. So this is for you. We've seen your, we've seen your diary. So here's the perfect vacation. Then you feel you're not in control. So if 
On the other hand, the algorithm is transparent. So it says, we've taken a look at this. So it shows you how the process works and then says, well, we have five or eight different things here for you to choose from. And the interesting thing is it should put some stupid choices in there as well. So you feel smarter than the algorithm because if all five or eight choices would be perfect, people don't like that. So for example, the Netflix algorithm, if you think, why does Netflix show me this awful documentary that, you know, I've never watched anything even close to why is it showing me this? That is actually giving you the feeling you're in control and you're smarter than the algorithm. If the algorithm is too perfect, it actually scares us away. So indeed, we need a choice and we need to understand a little bit of how the algorithm works. And then we're accepting it. Okay. I think that used to be called the TiVo effect. I'm showing my age now, right? Pre-Netflix. Yeah. Pre-Netflix. Yeah. Oh, idea. I didn't go BH, VHS and Betamax, but I thought the TV used to, you've watched these three things, therefore you must be interested in this. And then you get the thing, but I really didn't watch those three things. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> but that's indeed why they're saying based on this, because if you don't show that, then people are like, wait, 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 you're in my head. Amazon has a patent a few years ago already, anticipatory shipping. I don't know if you've heard it. So they know so well when you're going to order something that you're just going to have it in storage in a depot quite close to you, that if you order it, you have it the next hour. How, how do they know? Because they know you, especially if you've been like a prime customer, you share all your data, you've been with them for years. They just know when you're going to order this or that. And anticipatory shipping, it's already shipped and it's waiting in a warehouse around your block. So from a banking perspective, if you think about the bank's collect an awful lot of data. One of the challenges they have is monetizing that data internally and creating value of it and new products and new services appeal to the Brian Hayes of this world. To that point, the Amazon example, where's the ethics in that? I mean, because I know there's a lot of conversation around ethics and banking and trust. Where do you see that moving to and maintaining a balance that's acceptable to society as well as a balance that's acceptable to us because we want things. We want to be serviced. We want things created for us. So we have here in the Netherlands, we have a new supermarket. It's digital supermarkets called Picnic. And they don't have any physical branches. It's just online supermarket only. So they're quite cool. They have a very small inventory. They have they're in an app only. So you only have the app. But they have a few cool things. So they have electric delivery carts. So they're not these big vans blocking the streets, but they're actually very small electric vans. So they don't make noise. They don't block the street. But they offer extra services for free. For example, so recycling. So you get your groceries and you can give them a bag of recycling things and, you know, uh, give it back to them. And they also take, uh, they have now uh, recently started working together with DHL. So if you have a package or return something, you can give your package to the delivery truck, the mini electric truck that comes from, from this supermarket. So I think if you look at how we're going to monetize, I think looking at, all right, so what touch points do we have as a bank in this virtual world? And we can, can we add extra service? So as a supermarket to think everyone is shopping online, uh, we're at the door anyways. So what can we do? Also think about, all right, people hate all these vans blocking streets, especially in an old city like Amsterdam. So we're a new player. We're not going to buy these big diesel vans we're going to have these small carts and we can park them there there's no exhaust fumes and people love them they're these tiny little you know almost toy like things driving around uh, which is great marketing so i i would say think more like this and i don't have a bank example but i think that is where banks should go and actually i think it's that picnic model that you've just described 
you know, it's sustainable, it services the customer the way the customer wants to be services, it provides multiple different services. And that, and that is a great model. What I was trying to do is mirror that in my head and say, okay, well, what, what type of banking services do you aggregate in the same way? So you, And you see bits of it. You saw it with Revolut a few years ago in what they were trying to do in terms of currency transactions. And you've seen it in some of the other organizations now have, have emerged over the past, well, I guess, 10 in reality, to appealing away different bits of it. But no one's managed to – I'm now looking for Picnic Bank. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to... <laughs> That's it. There you go. Future. You've had your idea now. But uh, can, can I ask you a question? You can. So if I open up my, my uh, bank app uh, thing. Uh, here you go. He's going to ask you for your details. He's going to ask me for my card number. <laughs> he's, he's fishing on our call. Where's Tom Kellerman? <laughs> no, so... So I have three bank accounts. I have an American Express, so I have a credit card. I have an app for that. Then I have like, like an, a special app for these these peer to peer payments that you make. If you is that how do you call, say that in English? A special app for that. So I have loads of apps to do all my finances, and and I wish there was like a one stop shop. And why why isn't it there yet? So I think there's opportunity there. Why do we need all these apps? You know, make life a little bit easier. That's what I would wish for so i think that's uh, it's definitely one to be thinking about and uh, maybe there's opportunity there I, I look, i'm going to speak for i guess a lot of people so i've got two bank accounts with what you would consider the high street banks and for historical reasons one for where my mortgages and one for where i get my salary paid into then what you end up doing is you end up distributing the money across other accounts and you automate that process so whether that be an automated savings type capability, a round up or round down on what's left in, you know, or multiply the pennies that are left out of every transaction, like chip. Whether you have a, a savings account like Moneybox or you use Nutmeg. I went for a phase of opening the accounts to just see how easy it was to open the and it appealed to the inner nerd in me to see how quickly and how easily you could do that. I think people have got over the ease of, I can open an account in 10 minutes because that means I can shut the account in five if I wanted to. So that's that's not necessarily a great thing to do. It's creating that stickiness. And you talked about the relationship and emotion between the service and the customer. It's creating that stickiness so that you want to stay. And that's about servicing the customer, delighting the customer. But also, to your point, then how do I aggregate that? How do I offer that single view? And I think that is somewhere where you will see over the next few years, that will be a battleground for a lot of organisations to be that first pane of glass where everything else sits in. They're not necessarily going to ask you to take all your accounts and rebrand them and move them into one, but it's that ability to say, we are conduit by which you will access all of those because that empowers them and that's when your data then becomes even more valuable. Yeah, and that's where a tech company could make a difference, particularly one that's really worrying about or, or focusing on user experience. Very interesting. So um, let's move into our crystal ball section. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. What do you think will be the most significant game-changing technology or technologies for 2021 and beyond? And, and you know, and we're really, we're kind of thinking financial services, really. Yeah. So if you only say, you know, the word big data or people data, customer data, people immediately go like, oh, privacy, right? So if there can be a technology where data can be used in a safe and trusted way, 
And I don't know that if that exists yet or if a private company should hold that or you know a government should hold that. I think that could be a winning technology because with every new tech digital thing that's being there, there's privacy concerns, safety concerns. So if this trust thing that we've discussed, this worry, if there is a technology we can take that away, then we are going to have a winning technology. And Bitcoin, of course, tries to do a little bit of that with everything is open and then transparent, but then it's created by someone that we don't even know. So they're all about, oh, we're so transparent. You can see everything and it's in the book and, you know, I'll but where's the maker? So that could be one. And speaking of uh, cryptocurrencies, I think a trustworthy cryptocurrency made by a trustworthy, so I'm very much on trust. So Bitcoin 2.0. I think that could be a winner because all the cryptocurrencies I now hear my peers and friends and experts about, they're all these vague cryptocurrencies or it's Facebook announcing. And I, you know, I'm like, oh God, (laughs) if you were trust, you know, Facebook is at the bottom of my list. So where is the trustworthy cryptocurrency, please? Interesting. Interesting. And I think we covered it earlier, but... um, you still see cash being around, right? So this isn't to replace cash. This is another thing. Yeah, it's and, and. Definitely. I think cash will become, as more of our money will go into cryptos, cash will become more important at the same time. So take, for example, the whole working from home. If we start working from home two days a week, if you go to the office, then the meeting with a colleague become extra special. So yeah, we will have less physical meetings, but the ones we do have, we're going to have the best coffee uh, and we're going to have the best time together. So cash will become even more of a ritual, an emotional thing. And I'd say make cash more appealing. So because we will use less of it, the times we use it, we want the coins to be like high quality and the paperwork like nice colors, great. But so don't make it cheap. I would actually upgrade our cash. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay, let's head into this lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. So the idea here is that uh, we have got a ton of questions and uh, very few minutes remaining. And we're going to try and ask you as many as we can. A pass is allowed if it's just, you know, if it's too hard or if you just don't want to answer it. So, um Maybe I kick this off with, so if you weren't doing the job you're doing, what would you rather be doing? I'd probably be a, a high school or primary school teacher. First concert you ever saw? There was a, a, a two of my favorite bands in one. It was the Urban Dance Quad and then the Beastie Boys. Uh, okay. You are young. Last, yes, isn't he? Last concert you ever, that you've seen. Yeah, there was in September before everything was closed here. So there was a Dutch band called Spinvis. It's actually one of my favorite Dutch bands. The singer sings in Dutch. It's called Spinvis. Look it up. Even if if you if you're interested in beauty, it's just it's just awesome music. Spinvis. Okay. Top of the question. When was the last time you used cash and to buy what? Yesterday, pocket money one euro to my seven year old daughter. The last time I used cash to buy something in a store. That's a good one. I buy all our nuts and peanuts in a market stall, which is actually like a physical market. Uh, and I sometimes use cash there because you know, it's the market and they actually prefer cash. Um, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or into the future? Back in time? To where? Probably, I'd say somewhere in the 1980s. 
Okay. When when I was a little kid. So I have vivid memories when I was a teen, but I would go before that when I have some vague flashes and I could see my family and the, and the times I grew up when, when I was yeah, between zero and 10, somewhere there. What was the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Do what you really want to do and not what you think others would want you to do. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very good one. I got that when I was writing my master's thesis. I had a whole plan. And then the professor said, but is this really what you want to do? Is this your passion? And I said, well, maybe. And he said, well, what's your passion in life? And, you know, talked about sports and everything. He said, all right, tell me some more. And he said, all right, we're going to do your master's thesis on that. And it took a completely different direction. One of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, Best professional development book you've ever read? Never Split the Difference from Chris Voss. He's an FBI negotiator. I don't know if you've read it. What I liked about it that he's using empathy for everything. So to get what you want, so it, negotiating sounds, I think it has a negative connotation, but it's just if you communicate, if you use empathy, you, you can get where you want in, in almost any situation. Home or office? Home. Tea or coffee? Coffee. A flat white, please. Oh, your go-to song in a karaoke bar. Yeah, I don't know if, if people would know this. I would pick a, a Queens of the Stone Age song. And then preferably, yeah, my favorite would be Go With The Flow. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Critters and bugs in China. Some larvae, I think. They were all deep fried, so it's not, it, was not really, uh, it was not really too much of a challenge. Yeah. Bit of travel. So boat, train, or plane? Oh, that's easy. Train, always. I love trains. But there are not enough trains. So, I, I, so this is also a thing I would like for the future is trains everywhere. Just a train is so comfortable. I, I love it. I seem to have the food questions today. What was your least favorite food as a child? And do you still hate it or do you love it now? My least favorite food, I think there were Brussels sprouts. Oh, yes. I'm, a, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm now in between-ish. So <laughs> the tolerance. I don't hate them anymore, but I would never, I wouldn't buy them myself. So I eat them twice a year, I think. But it's more like a emotional thing brings me back to my youth more more for that reason actually yeah i was gonna say it's either that or setting a good example for your children yeah and they have to eat their age i had to do the same when i was young so (laughs) if you're five you eat five yeah what's your favorite place that you've traveled to that's an easy one iceland iceland and norway is his second very close contender but iceland definitely okay i love everything about that country it's like magical it's like you're in a different why would you go why would elon musk go to mars if you could go to iceland it's it's such it's like being have you been to iceland i have been to iceland oh, it's and to norway and to sweden oh. It's like, I, I love Scandinavia. It's like elves and trolls and magic and smoke. There's lava. <laughs> the people are lovely. I love the food. There's nature. There's mountains. I prefer cold climates. So there's snow and ice and glaciers. And, and it's remote. So there's not a lot of people because I live in Amsterdam. So I like quiet. But yeah, it's just the uh, great musicians. So every, everyone seems to be playing the instrument or sing. Uh, all the, many great bands come from there. So yeah, it's just the yeah, Iceland. Uh, yeah, number one. Okay. What's your favorite item you've bought in the past year? Yeah, that would actually be something I use for work. That's my Blackmagic ATEM Mini. So it's a switchboard for online keynotes and I can connect different cameras to it, extra computers. And that has changed you know, my whole virtual speaking, workshopping, training, and, and I love it. It's right in front of me. I'm stroking it right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, there we go. I have been thinking about the ATM, the ATM Mini, as you as you well know. So, um, okay. And it's low and it's low tech because you don't need that. There's a whole software package that comes with just plug and play, and it has actual buttons. So I hate, you know, if you're in a new car like a Tesla, it has a touchscreen. I hate touchscreens. I want buttons <laughs> that you can just grab and twist and and shove up and down, and not tactile. We need tactile thing, you know, a haptic design. Yeah. What a great way to uh, to round out our call today. It was a pleasure. You're very cool. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Timon. Thanks, gentlemen. To learn more about Timon's latest ideas, the best way is to follow him on Twitter. That's at Timon, T-H-I-M-O-N. Or you can connect with him on his LinkedIn page. We'll also have these links in our show notes. If we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. You can also find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care of yourself.